Thanks so much for choosing our podcast. Before you start this episode, this is Kellen Erskine from the future. If you're listening to the book pile for the first time, I highly recommend starting on a later episode after we hit our stride. Some of my all-time favorites are when we cover the books The Hunger Games, 1984, and The Roasts of the Da Vinci Code, or any of the Twilight Roasts. If you're here because you already like the podcast and want to binge from the beginning, then thanks again. New episodes every Monday. Hey everyone, what if you could make messages that no one would ever forget? Today's book is Made to Stick by Chip Heath and Dan Heath, who have teenage girls around the country debating who's the sexiest Heath. Hey, I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and the first person in 2020 to start a podcast. (laughs) I'm David Vance, and in an effort to make my name more memorable, I decided to share it with a nude photographer, and that is true. Wait, is there a story behind that? Oh, no, there's just a nude photographer named David Vance. Oh. (laughs) Made to Stick is all about making your messages as memorable as possible. Working in ads, this book has influenced my writing more than any other writing book I've ever read, so I'm excited to share it with all of you. Oh, I guess that doesn't work for both of our intro, huh? And Kellen will tag along for the ride. And this is The Book Pile. All right, and without further ado... Here are five lessons that we took from Made to Stick. Lesson one, make your messages surprising but fitting. So this concept, the Heath brothers call it being post-dictable, meaning the message should surprise you. It's not predictable, but after you hear it, it makes sense. It's post-dictable. And your explanation of post-dictable ended up being post-dictable of the word (laughs) post-dictable. Also, the more times in a row you say post-dictable, the weirder it sounds. (laughs) The more one syllable starts to stick out. (laughs) Or you could say that post-dictable sounds like an incorrigible Charles Dickens character. (laughs) Like Oliver Twist fell in with the artful dodger and (laughs) post-dictable. So a great example of this is The Sixth Sense, where almost none of us saw the twist coming. You know, it was surprising, but once the twist happened, it made sense of a lot of things that we had seen before. This is the kind of thing our ad team thinks about a lot in making ads. The book describes this really bad example of an ad that aired during the Super Bowl. It's this ad where this marching band goes out on a football field, and then they get attacked by wolves. And then you're supposed to remember from that the name of this e-commerce company. But obviously, a band getting attacked by wolves has nothing to do with an e-commerce company. So it's just surprising for the sake of being surprising. There's nothing surprising but fitting about it. Unless you own a wolf-unleashing business. <laughs> right. It's Which, not, you're not going to really... Hear me it. out. I remember a a Super Bowl ad from the 90s. It was during the first dot-com bubble, and it was a company called Outpost, and they said... It is Outpost. That's the the company that did this Wolves ad. Oh, how funny. That's that's crazy, because I remember an ad where it was just a guy saying, in order to make you remember the name Outpost.com, we're going to shoot live gerbils at the O. (laughs) And they had (laughs) giant cardboard block letters, outpost, and they were shooting ostensibly. They were shooting gerbils at the O. And until just now, you told me it was the same business. I, to this day, didn't know what they did. (laughs) Amazing. What I love about marching band is it's the only time we give someone a fancy military uniform and it lowers their status. (laughs) But on that subject of surprising but fitting... 
when we made the Squatty Potty ad, we really tried to focus on that as our ethos. So if you haven't seen it, the Squatty Potty is the stool that helps you poop better. And we wanted the ad to be surprising. So, we, you know, we made it about a unicorn pooping ice cream, but we also wanted it to be fitting. So, you know, that idea that unicorns poop ice cream, that's something I've heard a million times. And so once you saw the ad, even though it was surprising, it still made sense that a pooping unicorn would be the thing kind of teaching you about this product. But this idea of surprising but fitting, you just kind of see it across a number of different fields. BJ Novak from The Office says... A good comedy operates the exact same way a good mystery operates, which is the punchline is something that is right in front of your face the whole time and you never would have put your finger on it. All right. Lesson two, be concrete, not abstract. This is the thing that has, uh, has affected my comedy more than any other advice uh, that I've read over the years. They give this example of like, um, imagine that JFK, if he was an aerospace CEO, he would have said something like, our mission, I can't do a JFK impression. Because you're faithful to your wife. <laughs> So imagine that he said, our mission is to become the international leader in the space industry through maximum team-centered innovation and strategically targeted aerospace initiatives. That's like a very <laughs> abstract thing to say. You can think of abstract and concrete in terms of simply like abstract is adjectives and concrete yeah. is nouns. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like concrete is... Can you see it? Can you picture it? Could you hold it in your hands? Like actual things and people and places. <laughs> he just explained what a noun is. <laughs> so instead, JFK said that we will have a man walk on the moon by the end of this decade. And that mm -hmm. that's a very concrete visual they say that that first statement that I made, that hypothetical one that they wrote, rather than leading us along a plotting route from one incremental step to the next, this idea gives us a sudden dramatic glimpse of how the world might unfold. Yeah. And so, not to compare myself to yet another U.S. president, but I have a good example of like a concrete thing that I've said uh, when I was on Conan. So, I have this <laughs> joke... The, I will say JFK was not on Conan for all his accomplishments. <laughs> That's what I should put on my bio. <laughs> you've been faithful to your wife and you've been on Conan, two things JFK could not do. <laughs> the third thing I've done is ride in a convertible safely. So <laughs> the joke from my last special that got the biggest response well, I'll start from the beginning of the joke, from its from its genesis. I originally had this idea when I was in a Home Depot, and I saw just, you can just buy chains there, how crazy it is that you can... <laughs> no questions asked. Yeah. So the original joke was this sort of long, abstract idea where I said that you could... It's crazy that you could just buy a length of chain and a padlock, and then lock the doors of any building. right? And so it would get some response just because of the idea, but it still wasn't concrete enough to have um, it's a broad much idea. of an impact. Yeah, the abstract things are, I'm talking about length. When I say a business, it could it could be anything any or, or a building. Let's listen real quick to what the joke became after I gave it a, a specific concrete situation. You know what else is not stealing? Putting an extra bike lock on a stranger's bike. <laughs> it's insane that bike locks are legal, that they're just available to the public. You have any idea the amount of power that you wield <laughs> with your imagination in a bike lock? There's so many things. Like, you could just walk past a Baskin Robbins and be like, you're closed. 
so eventually I was able to distill it down to just the concrete image of putting a bike lock on the doors of a Baskin Robbins. Mm -hmm. And that concrete image, it's even what got the laugh. It resonated so much. Um, that since then, that's what I look for when I'm telling stories, whether on or off the stage. How do I avoid these abstract words and statements and just get to the the concrete details? It does feel like it became so much more concrete just because people are able to visualize it so specifically. We're all there with you in that scene. I was really excited when I made this connection of why my bike lock joke worked so well. That it, you know, <laughs> okay. it became my focus, and I, I came up with this other joke. I was at a comedy club, and the joke was about the idea that how drinks with ice are a scam. Like ice is just time released water. <laughs> why not make frozen Coke cubes and pour them into the drink? And people were like laughing, but it was such like such a concrete real idea that people were looking at their drinks and all of a sudden oh. the owner or, or the manager of that club she yells out we do that here no way but they don't she was just trying oh, she to, was just jumping in on the joke she, no she was trying to save her business <laughs> <laughs> because i was calling them out when I wrote the joke, I didn't write it with the vision in mind that literally every person I was telling the joke to would have an iced drink in their hands. <laughs> so you were start this you, protest mid-show. You were so you were a comedian unwittingly undermining the venues you're performing in. It's like if the King's Court jester made jokes about revolution to the crowd there, and all the crowd are like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, oh, okay." I imagine a jester with like curly shoes and bells on his hat. He's juggling rocks and he's just like <laughs> the king in front of him. But to the masses, he's like, can you believe that there are so many more of us than there are of them? <laughs> What's the deal with that? <laughs> okay, lesson three. Beware the curse of knowledge. So one of the central premises of the book is that when you know something really well, when you're an expert in that thing, you forget what it's like to not know that thing. And so you'll be talking to someone in a way that you think is clear, and you're just not aware that it isn't clear to them. So to demonstrate that, I want to do a little game with Kellen, where I have a song in my head, and I'm going to knock out the rhythm of that song on my desk, and I'm going to see if Kellen can guess what it is. Ready? Is that The Reason by Hoobastank? <laughs> Very close. It's Crazy in Love by Beyonce. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try one more. I would love it if uh, just, it was just the FedEx guy. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, a Pressure by Queen. It is not. It's Let It Be by the Beatles. We show that. Wait, can we I show do show that one? little. Can I do one? Yeah, now? do one. We'll say a bad version of the national anthem. That was The Reason by Hoobastank. <laughs> it's almost immoral that a band of people created a single hit that has forced all of us to know the name Hoobastank. <laughs> so we did this experiment just to demonstrate that sometimes you can have something that is crystal clear for you and you think you're communicating it clearly, but then the other person just has no idea what you're trying to communicate. All right. Lesson four, tell stories. <laughs> This might be painting with too broad a brush, but when someone's LinkedIn profile includes storyteller, I just assume I won't like them. <laughs> 
that to me implies self-indulgent because to me, the antonym of storyteller is good listener. (laughs) So could you Google the words, when did Jared, and then read me the next line or two, what what Google predicts or post dicks? (laughs) For me specifically. For you specifically, yes. (laughs) Shut up. When did Jared and Ashley get engaged? <laughs> oh, you know what I think that is? I've been watching a little bit of The Bachelorette with my girlfriend. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's Bachelor. You're not dating anyone. <laughs> oh, no, she's real. What's the next No, one? that's it. Oh, we're looking at all of them. All right. I just want to see if this one will come up. When did Jared and Ashley get together? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get that most of these are going to be questions about Jared and Ashley. When- when did Jaredites come to America? When did Jared from Subway go to prison? Hey, 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 that was it. So when did Jared from Subway go to prison was number one on mine. So obviously <laughs> you watch a lot of The Bachelor and I eat a lot of sandwiches. So I don't know. I know stuff happened with Jared, but this book came out before Jared from Subway's demise. So it's just a good example of the power of storytelling. Right before the Jared story of, hey, I lost whatever it was, 50 pounds by eating at Subway for six months. The ineffective marketing campaign right before that was six under seven. What do you mean? Which is exactly, it it meant that they had six sandwiches that had under seven grams of fat, which again is just just asking to be not remembered. So just to be clear... Their viral marketing campaign was a fraction. <laughs> exactly. Their big push was math. <laughs> Subway, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they would call their employees sandwich artists, <laughs> which it's an inaccurate behavioral implication because historically artists are people who break from tradition or, you know, they break from, uh, so what I'm looking for? Convention norms. Yeah, they break um, from convention, but like boundaries. these employees like couldn't be more bound to what they're supposed to be doing. Sure. Like you want a meatball sandwich? I'm going to put the meatballs on the outside. You know, there's like, <laughs> right. I don't conform. <laughs> I do empathize with the Heath brothers in that they wrote an entire chapter about someone who then turned out to be a pedophile because I've given, I gave a speech once that was videotaped and is still online where for an entire section, I talk about how nice Ellen is. (laughs) (laughs) I had to rewatch it the other day and I was like, Oh, that, that aged poorly. So this idea of stories, you're into Harry Potter. So I'm assuming you also are into Legos. If you notice (laughs) every, every Lego box, they don't just have a picture of the item. They tell a story with every picture. Oh, interesting. So if they're selling, like they won't just sell a police car. They will sell a police car that is chasing a robber on a motorcycle. And there's a tiny little like jail cell that's been broken open. So everything, mm. they're kinetic, but they're also just these sort of memorable vignettes, like one panel comics. I love that I made fun of you, like implied that you're really into Legos, but <laughs> boy, am I projecting. They have, it's not just a restaurant, but it is a restaurant that is on fire. And that mm. way they're selling a building and they're selling a fire engine, 
but things are happening. Mm. You know, it's it's it's. I would of, love to make it even more granular, where the restaurant is on fire for the insurance. <laughs> I love that concept that not only is Lego with each set creating a story, but they're also inviting you to participate. And speaking of stories, here's a story about me. I was on season seven of America's Got Talent. I lasted two episodes. (laughs) The first episode took place in San Francisco in front of 5,000 people at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Moved on to the next round, the next episode in Las Vegas, where for some reason it was just the three judges in this 4,000-seat theater inside (laughs) the Palazzo. So it worked for that sort of... You have so many, like perfect bad show stories i really got a taste for how all pro athletes felt this year oh yeah (laughs) because and this the way it works how baseball players feel every year the way (laughs) technically a show with three people could work as long as there was a i was doing like comedy in an elevator uh which i have (laughs) But three people in a theater that seats 4,000 people actually did decently for the situation. So when it was over, I was I was really confident that I was moving on. They brought us back out at the end of the day, me and two other comics, and stood on the stage to await what I thought was going to be. We were the three comics moving on. The other two were going home. But it turned out that we were the three comics being eliminated. And it was wow. it was so devastating for me because I was so naive at the time, like thinking that a show like this was big enough to to launch a career, which it doesn't. I mean, it hasn't. It's done well for a couple comedians. Like a couple comics have gotten like second place in it and then done pretty well on the corporate circuit for the next year or so. But I was devastated. I thought that it was going to change everything. I was still working a, a, a job for a water softener company. I remember thinking. At the hotel, they put us up, they flew us in, we drove in limos to the the Venetian week. We each got these massive rooms for ourselves. And I remember looking down, I was on like the 25th story, looking down onto the top of the conference center of the structure. And it was like 109 degrees outside and there were guys working on the air conditioning way down below. And I remember thinking, man, I remember how it was to be those guys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then fast forward, it took me six and a half more years to quit my day job. <laughs> so if you can imagine like uh, emotionally, like how built up I was, I thought that this show was going to change my life. I go out on stage and Howard Stern says, you're going home. Like you didn't make it. And feeling so devastated. When we were done shooting everything, I went to a Panda Express. I ate my meal, sadly, alone. I opened a fortune cookie, and the fortune said, you should consider a career in medicine. <laughs> and I was so I was so angry, because speaking of abstract and concrete, usually fortunes are very abstract. Like, you will find <laughs> wealth in the coming years. Like, But this one was so concrete. They so usually was, try to be broad to cover their bases, so yeah. they can't be disproved. Yeah, they don't usually just very specifically punch down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson five. Don't say what it is, say what it means. So they tell this story from Nora Ephron when she was in high school taking a journalism class. She goes in the first day of class, her teacher gives them a list of facts and basically says, all right, turn these facts into a news story. 
So the facts are these. The principal announced there will be a symposium in Sacramento next Thursday. All the teachers are going to learn about new teaching methods, and the speakers will include people like Margaret Mead, the governor, etc. So these students sit down and they start writing out these news stories that essentially regurgitate all those facts, and then they hand in their stories. And then the teacher looks around at these stories. He reads the leads of each one, and then he pauses, and then he says, the lead to this story is... There will be no school next Thursday. <laughs> and the takeaway, the takeaway Nora Ephron came away with that has been a big lesson for me is that when you're making a message, you don't want to focus on what it is. You want to focus on what it means. So that was the only lead that actually focused on what this story meant for the readers who were the other students. You see this kind of thing in other examples. So for instance, when the iPod launched, what it is is a portable MB3 player. But what it means, and this is the tagline they used, is 1,000 songs in your pocket. And now the motto of the iPhone is, kill 1,000 sperm in your pocket. (laughs) All right, so to recap, our favorite lessons from Made to Stick. Number one, beware the curse of knowledge. Number two, be concrete, not abstract. Number three, make your messages surprising but fitting. Number four, tell stories. Number five, don't say what it is, say what it means. And number six... Hoobastank sucks.